Father, we desperately need to meet with you. Our faith is flickering. We need you to use the text to make it a blazing fire. Our affections are waning. We need you to infuse us with an awakening desire for thee. Our will to obey is weakening. We need you to give us a steel spine to obey no matter what the cost. Our concern for the lost is spotty. We need you to make us soul conscious. Left to ourselves, we are in bad shape. Left to ourselves, we are unconcerned. Left to ourselves, we are pigs wallowing in the mud. And we like it. Left to ourselves, wait. You have not left us to ourselves. You came to us. You came to redeem our souls. To die as us, for us. On Calvary, you took the penalty for our sins and purchased for us freedom. And you have not left us alone. You sent your blessed Holy Spirit to abide in us. To give fuel to the flickering flame. To give new desire to the waning affections. To give strength to the weakening obedience. Father, without the constant work of your spirit, we are hopeless. Now, with your word and with your spirit, will you do work among us? Holy Spirit, all is in vain unless you show up and create an atmosphere of listening. An environment of repenting. A room for gladly receiving your word. Do it for the glory of the Father and the furtherance of the gospel. This is our corporate plea. Amen. The text is very pointed. And I intend to be just as pointed as Paul. Paul doesn't sugarcoat truths found in the text, and neither will I. I like sugarcoated donuts, but not sugarcoated truths. Some of you have committed horrible sins because your parents or pastors only sugarcoated these matters for you. I intend to give you the unadulterated, pure, stinging, uncomfortable word of God. I am praying this text has three, three effects upon you. First, that it keeps you from sexual sin. I'm talking to the middle schooler, the high schooler, the single adult, the newly married, the long time married. I intend for this sermon by God's grace to keep you from running into sexual sin. I will preach this text like you are about to walk into that hotel room. Like you are about to set up a meeting place. Like you are about to visit that site on the internet. Like you are about to send that message. I intend to preach this passage like it is the only thing standing between you and that sexual sin. So there will be urgency because your soul hangs in the balance. I'm praying this text has three, three effects upon you. First, that it keeps you from sexual sin. Second, that it will give you eternal reasons for abstaining from sexual sin. There are reasons to abstain from sexual sin that are weak, worldly, and wobbly. I will not give you any of those. I will give you theological reasons to abstain from sin. 
I will give you biblical reasons. I will give you God's reasons. Those are the only reasons that will pull your hand off of the doorknob and make you walk away. Those are the only reasons powerful enough to keep you from visiting that website week after week after week. Those are the only reasons that will sustain you to keep saying no to the sexual advances. I'll give you gospel reasons to avoid sexual sin. Gospel reasons that will make obedience to God's word more attractive than that sin. You will see the beauty of the gospel and it will cause you to see that sin as repulsive. Now, I should acknowledge that there is an adult nature to this subject matter. My 8-year-old, 11-year-old, and 12-year-old will all hear this. What I am going to say in front of your children is a lot tamer than what you will allow them to watch on YouTube. As a parent, you do what you need to do. As a parent and a pastor, I will do what I need to do. And I will do it with boldness. I am trusting the power of God's word to have a lasting effect on some of you younger ones. That you will point back to this day and this text and say, that was the moment I decided to remain pure before marriage. That was the text that kept me for my wedding night. I'm praying this text has three effects upon you. First, that it keeps you from sexual sin. Second, that it will give you eternal reasons for abstaining from sexual sin. Third, that it makes you view your body totally different than you've been viewing it. When you have a wrong view of the body, of course you're going to use it incorrectly and value it cheaply. The body isn't something you will one day throw off. It's something Jesus died to redeem. Church, together, we've got a lot of text to cover and a lot of uncomfortable moments to live. So let's get after it. Living by slogans, 12 through 14, learning about the body, 15 through 20. These are the two movements in the text. Living by slogans, 12 through 14, learning about the body, 15 through 20. Paul begins quoting some of their slogans. The Corinthians were fond of certain maxims. Uh, we, we find two of their favorites in the first two verses. Notice the ESV has quotation marks in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That motto is repeated twice, and each time there are quotation marks around it. There is evidence it had become some kind of a slogan. This catchphrase was a declaration of how they lived their life. It, it, it resulted from a false view of Christian liberty. Since they are not under the Mosaic law, they believed just about anything was permissible for them. They used the slogan as a shield for questionable and wrong practices. The, the maxim justified their immorality. They used this catchphrase to exonerate certain conduct. An antinomian spirit had infected the church. All things are lawful for me. Sounds like a very American slogan. We are so ready 
We are so ready to welcome any kind of new theological teaching that would excuse our immorality. And so-called theologians are happy to oblige. The Corinthian Christians were spouting something like this. Christian freedom gives me the license to do whatever I want. I mean, after all, Jesus will forgive me anyway. They had a cavalier attitude towards sexual encounters. Paul quotes their slogan and then either qualifies it or outright rejects it. The text says, all things are lawful for me, Paul adds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul takes their little slogan and adds to it. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, unless it's a sexually transmitted disease and then it comes home with you. That's what Paul did to them. He added to their slogan. Citing Christian freedom gets you nowhere. They are asserting freedom to do certain things that Paul says no. There's actually a play on word in the Greek. You have liberties in everything. But I will not be dominated by liberties. Even if it were permissible, you, you shouldn't do anything that's enslaving. All things are allowed to me, but I will not allow these things. All things are within my power, but I will not be overpowered by anything. Which leads us to this truth. It's possible to become slaves to the very thing we are boasting about doing in Christian freedom. It's possible to become slaves to the very thing we are boasting about doing in Christian freedom. And such was the case with the church at Corinth. Many scholars believe that the Corinthians are actually citing Paul's teaching. That they are using Paul's words to excuse their sin. After all, it was Paul who first said all things are lawful. He taught that to the church at Colossae and no doubt taught it to the church at Corinth. That the context was the legalist who tried to control everything people ate and drink. They are using Paul's slogan as a theological excuse to plunge headlong into their sea of sexual debauchery. They, of course, cited Paul out of context. They removed the phrase from its theological framework and turned it into a slogan to justify their sinful behavior. And Paul rescues his good slogan from them. These people... These people used inspired words to excuse their sin. Which just goes to show that when you want to sin, you will find a way for the Bible to grant you permission. Which just goes to show when you want to sin, you will find a way for the Bible to grant you permission. Here's the second of their slogans, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Meat for belly and belly for meat. Food and stomach have a relationship that is strictly biological. Verse 13 continues, And God will destroy both one and the other. Now, some debate on where this citation ends. The ESV cuts it off early. 
The Greek doesn't have quotation marks, so it's on the reader to discern. I think this slogan goes all the way to here. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. This is how they justified their hedonistic lifestyle. What does it matter since God will destroy it all anyway? The argument basically is use it before you lose it. And they think this is a very tight defense. My body wants food, so I eat. My body wants sex, so I do it. What's the problem? Paul responds, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality. They said sex is a natural human desire that shouldn't be frustrated but rather fulfilled. When you're hungry, you eat, and that's simply what's happening with sex. Your, your body has a desire, you satisfy it. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, sex for body, body for sex, past the potatoes and the sexual acts. Both are just biological urges that need to be met. Sex is just an appetite. When you need food, you eat. When you crave sex, you satisfy the craving. They drew an analogy between hunger cravings and sex cravings. Both are appetites. Both are physical. Both are biological. Both are very natural. The body is permitted to have anything that it craves. Sex is nothing more than an appetite to be satisfied. And this is how some of you have always viewed it. And I get it. When you've been told your whole life that you're nothing more than a highly evolved animal that has base needs and instincts, then you should act on those instincts. But here's the problem. You're not an animal. You're an image bearer. You were not evolved. You were created. Paul gave them a radically new and different Slogan, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Church, you, you can't live off the world's maxims. You have to live off the word of God. The world has their slogans and God has his scriptures. The body is not for sex. The body is for God. The, the stomach, the body, everything is for the Lord. Don't cheapen sex and turn it into a bodily function like eating. Sex is more than a physical urge. It is a sacred gift. Sex was casual for the Corinthians. It is sacred for the Christians. Sex was casual for the Corinthians but it is sacred for the Christians. The biblical view of sex was so lofty and highly above anything that these people had ever imagined. Christianity gave the world a revolutionary view of sex. It was something unique. The pagan world did not believe sex was sacred. It was just an appetite that needs to be filled. One Christian wrote to Diogenes in the second century and said, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. 
That was a completely different sexual ethic than what was promoted in Corinth. Verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, I want you to see the parallelism. The parallelism. Food for the body. You, you, don't, have to, you don't have to write this down. I just want you to see the parallelism. Let this sink in on you. And I know for some of your personalities, you're like, I have to write everything on the screen. <laughs> you don't have to write this. Food for the body. Body for food. Body will be destroyed. Body not for sex. Body for the Lord. Body will be raised. You see that parallelism? There's an obvious contrast. They came to the wrong conclusion about the purpose of the body and the destination of the body. Which leads us to this truth. Behind every sin, behind every sin is bad theology. And this is the bad theology that was behind their sexual immorality. Behind every sin is bad theology and this is the bad theology behind their sexual immorality. They believed the body had no moral significance. What you did with your body had no effect on your soul. It, it seems the church had made a radical distinction between the body and the soul. And this was typical of Greek dualistic thought. This church was more influenced by Plato than Paul. They made a sharp split between their souls and their bodies. They believed that the body had no place in the glorious destination of the soul. But according to this verse, God has future plans for your body. Paul wants the church to ponder the everlasting destination of their bodies. God has made an investment in your body. The Corinthians may be anti-body, but God isn't. The resurrection is God's affirmation of the body. Jesus exists in a body right now. The word became flesh and stayed flesh. Right now at the right hand of God the Father is flesh. Jesus in flesh. Jesus died to redeem our bodies too. Jesus' spirit wasn't enough. The body had to be raised from the dead. And the resurrection has implications. The Corinthian culture regarded the body as the prison of the soul. It traps the person. They are trapped in the body. Poor soul shackled to a corpse. But when God saves us, he saves all of us. He saves body and soul. We, we know the Bible. We don't simply have a body. We are embodied. The body is more than some transient physical shell for the soul. It is the object of Christ's redemption. God is pro-body. He made it. He designed it. Our bodies are not finally destined to be eaten by worms. He will raise them from the dead. Verses 12 through 14, living by slogans. Verses 15 through 20, 
learning about the body. Let's begin. Let's start verse 15. We won't finish it here, but let's start verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? (laughs) Paul enjoys these rhetorical questions that indicate something the church should already know. The question expects a positive answer. Paul points to the unity a believer experiences with Christ. They, They are united in the closest fashion. They are the limbs and organs of Christ. Christians should value their bodies highly because they are joined to Christ. And Paul asks, have you forgotten this basic teaching? He continues, verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Prostitution in the ancient world was much more culturally accepted than it is now. It was sex for hire. Prostitution then was as acceptable as pornography now. And apparently some men were going to prostitutes and arguing for the right to do so. Corinth had a a thousand temple prostitutes that descended on the city every night. And that's for a city about the size of Clarksville. Here's the truth. You take Christ with you wherever you go. You can't deny that. There's an inseparable unity between the two. Uh, Peterson paraphrases, you wouldn't take the master's body to some whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. Last word of verse 15, never, never. It's a blasphemous thought. When you engage in immorality, you engage Christ in it. When you engage in immorality, you engage Christ in it. When you put your sexual organs where they do not belong, you are putting Jesus where he does not belong. Taking him to the brothel, taking him to the pornography site, you are involving him in your sin. Now, what I am not saying is that Christ sins because you bring him into it. I'm saying believers represent Christ in what they do with their bodies. In Paul's thinking, Christ is placed in the most unthinkable position. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Paul identifies the cheapest kind of sex imaginable. Sex with a prostitute. If there ever were sex that were just physical, it would be that. However, Paul brings them to the irrefutable conclusion that when you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one. There's a mysterious union that happens when sex takes place. A spiritual bond is formed. You can't have sex with someone and not become one body with them. Verse 16b. For as it is written... The two will become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? That's a quote from Genesis. Paul is quoting Eden. He's bringing them back to God's original intention in intimacy. When you unite with someone sexually, you are bringing the spirit into that. Sex is not just biology. There is something deeply spiritual about it. 
Sex is not just biology. There's something deeply spiritual about it. The Corinthians believed what you did with your body had no bearing on your soul. No strings attached. Wrong! There's a soul attached. In sex, there's a mingling of souls happening. Lewis Smedes, a Christian ethicist, put it well when he wrote, and I quote, There is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the genitals. There is no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. End quote. Sex isn't as casual as you've made it out to be. The world has been lying to you about sex. You can never go to bed with someone and leave your soul parked outside. Sex involves the soul. Sex involves the soul. Notice there is, a, there is an extremely spiritual dimension to it. Sex is more than bodies mingling, it is souls mingling. It's not just skin to skin, it's spirit to spirit. It's more than physical coupling, there is spiritual coupling. And whether you want it to or not, there is a profound spiritual union that takes place in intimacy. Sex touches the soul. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Would you mark the word joined? The word joined here speaks of bonding together with, with like a woodworking glue or metallurgy by welding. In Paul's mind, it is totally inconceivable that he who is a member of Christ's body would then take that body and join it to that of a person who is not his or her spouse. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Let's stop there. We must spend time here. <laughs> flee from sexual immorality. This does not tell us to resist immorality. It commands us to flee immorality. We are not made to resist immorality. Stop expecting yourself to resist it. You are made to flee from it. Run like crazy. Always be wearing running shoes. Paul had preached the Joseph passage many times. The church hears this and they are thinking of Joseph in the Old Testament running from immorality. Paul doesn't say, you know, it's good if you just slip by immorality. Or if you just sneak by it. No, he says, flee. He does not want us to reason with it or rationalize with it, but flee from it. The verb tense speaks of habitual action. Make it your tendency to flee. Your pattern. Your natural response. <laughs> but this prohibition is not the final word. He offers, a, he offers theological reasons. Uh, not just a no but a no because of. Verse 18 continues. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Now Paul may be picking up on another misleading theological slogan of the Corinthians. They may have been saying you can't use your body to sin. 
There are two ways to view this phrase, both held by conservative scholars. You could view it as a quotation or as an argumentative assertion. Either way, the quotation would end at this point, and Paul would add, verse 18, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin is an attack on the body. It's, it's the only sin that is against the body. Now, if Paul is saying that it's the only sin that is against the tissue, then he is wrong. Suicide, cutting, all of that is against the tissue. And obviously a slew of other things. All sins are sins. But it appears that this sin is at another level because of its consequences. Sexual sins are not easily wiped away from our memories. Nor are they easily dealt with in subsequent relationships. There are built-in pitfalls with sin. This sin has particularly profound effects in a person's life. All sin is sin, but not all sin has the same effects. This sin results in cataclysmic devastation. Adultery devastates. Pornography devastates. Sexual immorality devastates. It devastates our own bodies. And it devastates others. There is a reason why sexual sin is particularly egregious. It violates the body by bringing it into a into a wrongful one flesh union. Sexual sin is against your own body. But that is not the climax of this argument. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Paul is driving home his appeal again. Do you not know? God doesn't live in temples anymore. He lives in bodies. He's bound himself so tightly in us. We are the new temples. When you commit sexual sin, you are profaning the temple of God. You are committing blasphemy in the Spirit's dwelling place. It's the ultimate sacrilege. The, the physical body is the place where God is present. Your body is a sacred space. When you sin in this way, you grieve the Holy Spirit and abuse the grace of God. End of verse 19. <laughs> you are not your own. You are the temple of God and now you belong to God. We are His by creation and again by redemption. Consider, just consider who owns you. Your body belongs to God. Your body belongs to God. You are not autonomous. When you refuse to obey God's commands concerning your body, you are telling God, you don't know how this body is to be used. I know best. I know best how this body is to be used. There are implications to God owning your body. 
He has the right to prohibit you to do things with your body. The gospel has the right to regulate your sexual life. Well, it's, it's my body. I can choose what to do with my body. It's not your body, friend. It belongs to God. You don't make choices about your body. God makes choices about your body. Committing sexual immorality is a failure to understand who owns you. Your body is not your own. Whatever is inside of your body, like a baby, is not your own. Newsflash, it's not your body or your choice after all. The entire passage gives a Trinitarian rebuttal to committing sexual sin. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in our bodies. By the way, stop giving your children weak reasons for not having sex before marriage. Well, son, you could get an STD. Daughter, you could put yourself in a dangerous place. Stop that. Speak like a Christian. They need theological reasons. Gospel reasons. Son, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You are bringing God into the back seat on prom night. That's why you don't commit sexual immorality. Verse 20. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. If that was said to you by another human being, then these would be horrific words to hear. But we find in Jesus a far kinder master of our bodies than we will find anywhere else. In the ancient world, slaves belonged to whoever paid the price to own them. Paul echoes the slave market language regarding salvation. You've been bought by someone who gave all to have you. The price was the blood of Christ. You've been bought with a price and you are now free to do all that the Lord commands of you. You are no longer a slave to sex. You are now a slave to Christ. You are no longer a slave to sex. You are now a slave to Christ. In whose service is perfect freedom. The message paraphrased this like this. Don't you see that you can't live however you please? Squandering what God paid such a high price for? God owns the whole works. I like that. You are property of the Redeemer. We belong to someone else. And therefore, our bodies can't be used in whatever way we want. You may fly under the banner of, I'm free, I'm liberated, I get to have sex with whoever I please. But Paul is saying, you are in fact a slave. You are not free. You are a sex slave. Some of you are thinking you're dabbling with it, but you're enslaved to it. You can't stop. No sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. 
the more it is indulged, the more it controls the indulger. One pastor said, sexual sin does this. It, it dominates and it controls us so quickly. He said, I talk with people all the time who feel like they are controlled by or addicted to some facet of sexual sin. You are not made for that master. Verse 20, so glorify God in your body. You, you, you grammar people, you're like this. The indicative, Christ purchasing us, proceeds the imperative, glorify God with your bodies. There's an urgency about it. There will be no delay. Glorify God in your body this instant. Before, it was please the body. Now, it's please God. Your body no longer exists for self-gratification, but rather for God-glorification. You are not the captain of this vessel. He has commandeered the ship. What are ways we can glorify God with our bodies? How can we do that today? Well, in application, let me give you seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. One, don't make an idol out of your body. Don't make an idol out of your body. There is a moral and right use of the body. We use our bodies relationally and sexually as God has designed us in his word. We don't flaunt the body. In our gym selfie culture, people love to flaunt the body. And it just reveals you are idolizing it. Posting pictures of your body doing all types of workouts. Why is it that you always want to show off your body? It is not yours to show off. It belongs to God. Always trying to get compliments on your body, trying to get people to look at your body. There's a million applications. Plunging necklines, tight clothing, whatever. Christian modesty is a thing. What you do with your body matters. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Two, abstain from sinful sex and enjoy holy sex. Abstain from sinful sex and enjoy holy sex. Paul does not say that Christians should flee sex. There is a heavenly sex and a hellish sex. One designed by God and one imitated by Satan. God condemns bad sex, not good sex. And I want to be clear, we are for intimacy. We are for marriage and for having babies. We are for reproduction and filling the earth with worshipers. But sex only works within the bounds of marriage. Like a fire and a fireplace is good. You take it out and put it in the living room, it's deadly. Sex within marriage is a gift. Sex outside of marriage is a curse. Sex has embankments. 
It's one, of, it's one of the greatest possible gifts within God's embankments. John MacArthur says, those who consider all sex as evil are just as far from the truth as those who consider all sex as good and permissible. Single adults, meet a guy, meet a gal, have the approval of both sets of, of parents, talk about the Lord, read and pray together, take premarital counseling here at the church, get married, and enjoy each other. One, one preacher said, <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like God created man and woman and then left to go make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> and then came back and was like, what in the world is going on down there? I can't believe it. Look at that craziness. I never knew they'd do that. How did they even come up with that? No. God designed this event. He planned it. Sex is good. The body is good. Nudity is good. Providing all of that is within the context of marriage. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Three, submit to God's divine design for marriage, which offers clear prohibitions and permissions. Submit to God's divine design for marriage, which offers clear prohibitions and permissions. God offers clear sexual prohibitions. No sex with animals, relatives, children, people of the same gender, or sex outside the confines of marriage. God is not a tyrant who makes arbitrary rules to kill your joy. This is for our good and for the glory of God. Sex is celebrated all throughout the Bible. It's not something we have to keep quiet from children. Sex outside of marriage, destructive. Inside of marriage, creative and beautiful. We respond to God's grace by sexual integrity. Intimacy is a sign of the marriage covenant. And you say, well, what's wrong, Kyle, if we're two consenting adults and we choose to do this outside of marriage? Then you are pulling the sign of the marriage covenant outside of the marriage, and that is totally inconsistent with God's design. Well, Kyle, I think, it's, I think about 50 states say it's legal. Just because the culture says it's okay doesn't mean that God says it's okay. Sex was invented by God. Sex was God's invented way of you giving yourself to someone. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Four, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Don't reason with it. Run from all sexual thinking. Looking, touching, desiring, run from commercials that are soft porn, run from vulgarity, uh, overtones and innuendo in conversations, run from middle and high school joking that turns everything into sex, run from his apartment, don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to make stupid decisions, 
run from illicit sexual faults and acts? I thought about titling this sermon, Just Flee Everything. <laughs> if you pulled Christians from other centuries and dropped them in our churches, what would they think? They would think, how are they so conditioned to watch that, wear that, laugh about that, and not puke at that? Even what we allow ourselves to watch on TV, take a long, hard look at that. You, you are condemning something in the world that you freely watch on TV. If you took a three-month break from whatever sitcom or drama you are watching, if you took a three-month break from all of that and then you came back to it, you would be shocked by the things you are no longer shocked by. You would never watch a certain event in person, but you're okay watching it on TV. Kevin DeYoung has a book entitled The Hole in Our Holiness. I could not recommend it highly enough. You should all leave here, buy it, and read it this week. Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. Flee pornography. 89% of all pornography is created in the United States. 28,000 viewers watch pornography every second. One-third of all pornography viewers are women. It's a $17 billion industry, larger than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. There is more traffic to these sites than traffic to Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. People are addicted watching at work while waiting in lines. They are anything but free. They are enslaved. And youngsters, if you have parents that will not allow you to have free reign on cell phone internet, thank God for them. Because pornography rewires your brain in fundamental ways. They market themselves to 12 and 13 year olds. One psychiatrist one psychiatrist said, porn is more enslaving to people than heroin. There's visual pornography, then what I call poetic pornography, all these romance novels. That's pornography for the feelings. I spoke to one guy recently who told me, I was first exposed to pornography at age 12, but by God's grace, I just had a glimpse. I have never struggled with it since. And I asked him, what, 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 why do you think that was the case? He said, oh, I know. My dad put the fear of God in me regarding pornography. And it still sticks today. Dads are having a hard time putting the fear of God in their kids regarding pornography because they are watching it themselves. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Give thought to how far is too far while you are dating. Give thought to how far is too far while you are dating. We have many single adults in our church. And this is something that you deal with constantly. Setting boundaries and then breaking them. 
wondering if that boundary is too far or maybe too strict. This is something that many of us struggled with before we got married. Struggled to set boundaries and keep boundaries. And quite a few of you are thinking, Kyle, you told us from the Bible not to have sex, but that's not enough. You need to be more specific. How far is too far? And I really think the church has done a disservice to many single adults by not addressing this. This room is filled with people, married people, who wish someone sat down with them and walked through this. There is no how far is too far verse. There are parts that are private. There are parts that are private. God has designed for them only to be revealed in marriage. These parts do not need to be grabbed or caressed or pressed up against. If an activity is sexual, it is to be restrained from. Passionate kissing is a sexual activity. It arouses. But you already know this, right? The spirit in you is grieved when you do it. And what a gift. Kevin DeYoung said, you never regret what you did not do. <laughs> you never regret what you did not do. Can I give you another book recommendation? Sex, Dating, and Relationships by Gerald Highstand and Jay Thomas. Excellent resource for you single adults. Sex, Dating, and Relationships for Gerald Highstand and Jay Thomas. Actually, that's an excellent, excellent resource for anyone. Your time in the Word is important. You can't consistently creep over those boundaries and at the same time spend a lot of time meditating on God's Word. Sin separates you from God. Assurance of salvation and disobedience do not go hand in hand. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Six, sexual sin is nasty, disgusting, and full of consequences. But it is not the unforgivable sin. Sexual sin is nasty, devastating, and full of consequences, but it is not the unforgivable sin. Maybe you are here and this text has broken you. In all the right ways, it has broken you. You are under deep conviction of sin. You must repent and beg for cleansing. This room is full of people who have once violated this text. We ask for forgiveness. We pleaded for mercy. We didn't hide our sin or rationalize it. We brought it out into the open. There it is, Lord. I, I don't blame you if you just walked away from me. And God says, I never walk away from repentance. I bring forgiveness when there is repentance. The marriage can be restored. The sins can be forgiven. The addictions can be broken. This is the power of the gospel. After repentance and God's eyes, when he sees us, he sees us like pure virgins. We are anything but. However, he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. The only man who never sinned sexually. The only person who kept this passage perfectly. There is not a sexual sin you've committed 
I don't care if it's with someone of the same gender, with someone else's spouse, with someone you are dating. There are no sexual sins that can't be washed by the blood of Christ. Some of you started your relationship poorly. You did it all wrong. But you repent it now. And it can be holy from this moment on. Moving forward, chastity outside of marriage and fidelity inside. Seven ways you can glorify God with your body. Seven. That's just for non-Christians. Non-Christian, you can trade the pleasures of this life for the pleasures of another life. Non-Christian, without Christ, you can enjoy sex on a biological level. But you will always miss the trueness that God intended for sex to have in your life. A hookup can't provide for you what Jesus can. What you are searching for and hookup after hookup can't be found in those meetings. It can only be found in a person. Sex, how you are pursuing it, can't make you feel satisfied. Sex, how you're pursuing it, can't make you feel loved. It can't make you feel wanted. It can't erase the memories you are trying to drown out. It can't fulfill the longing of your soul. The forgiveness of Christ is what you're looking for. Now, now that's to my non-contentious, non-Christian friends. Now to my contentious, non-Christian friends. They say, Kyle, you are a sexually suppressed bigot. <laughs> I've been called worse. Here's what I really want to hit you with. You need to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And when you come, you submit to his commands. He exercises lordship over you. Lordship over your soul and your body. And you say, no one has lordship over my pants. Then you will never follow Christ. Because he holds lordship over every aspect of your life. Father, we are not the first generation of Christians you've called to live in a sex-crazed society. But you've given us all we need to remain pure. May this text, please, Lord, may this text have its intended effect on your church. That is our only plea. Amen.